My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, March 13th, 2013. Yep, that means they picked the new Pope on 31313. <laughs> Can't wait to hear William Tapley's take on that, and thankfully we will not be doing that today. Good grief. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Yeah, Like I pointed out, yeah, today is is a brand new Pope Day. Um, not sure what any of that means. I've never really been one to follow popes, although I find it fascinating that he picked the name Francis. And I'm not sure if he's picked the name Francis to, uh, you know, to be an homage to Francis of Assisi, or if we're dealing with um, <clears throat> one of the uh, the Jesuit saints, uh, Francis Xavier. I'm not sure which. <laughs> I can't. I can tell you this. I'm <laughs> I'm not happy with either choice for whatever reason, but anyway, yeah, we'll have to see how this all plays out. But you know, again, I'm looking forward to hearing what William Tapley has to reveal regarding the prophetic tea leaves and the numerology of the new pope being picked on three thirteen thirteen. So, but we're going to save that for a future episode of Fighting for the Faith. The ball right now is in William Tapley's court, and I'm sure that he is busy at work inside of his bunker. Uh, prophetic <laughs> survived the end of the world bunker that he has and the uh, three-year supply of spam that he's got going on down there. But uh, we'll see what he's able to put together so we can find out the story within the story that's outside of the story that's within the numerological prophetic story that everybody else missed that William Tapley will be sure to get. 
But for today, (laughs) we will not be doing that. For today, we will be continuing with our three-part series by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, entitled The Man of Heaven. Today will be part two of the uh, lecture. Fantastic stuff, drawing the uh, parallels between uh, Christ and uh, Adam, which I think are very important typological uh, and Christological things to be tying those uh, connections to. So without any further ado, uh, here's today's light edition of Fighting for the Faith, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson and his lecture, The Man of Heaven, Part 2. In this series, this little series of three studies we're having together under the title of The Man of Heaven, yesterday morning we thought at the beginning about the way in which this notion of the two Adams, which Paul employs very particularly in Romans 5, 12 to 21, and in 1 Corinthians 15 in the resurrection chapter, is perhaps the most comprehensive, as it certainly seems to be the most cosmic perspective which the Apostle Paul employs in his understanding of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It needs to be said, of course, that it is one of a series of telescopes which the Apostle Paul puts in our hands in order that we may see, bring near the riches of the grace and wisdom of God that are stored up in Jesus Christ. But it is a perspective that in a variety of different ways opens up to us because it contains within itself the whole structure of redemptive history. And for that reason, there is a sense in which we can move from the idea of our Lord Jesus as the second man and the last Adam, the second man because there is no man like him between Adam and himself, the last Adam because after him there is no further need for another Adam in Jesus Christ all the purposes of God written into the very act of creation come to their consummation. And we saw particularly in 1 Corinthians 15 from the way in which Paul glosses Genesis 2-7 that the apostle himself appears to read the Genesis narrative as a description of protological man, first man, in anticipation of him becoming eschatological man. That the body that comes from the earth, that comes from the dust, is in the divine purpose from the beginning intended to be transformed into a body of glory. And as I noted yesterday as well, I think that concept of Christ as the second man, the last Adam, is a concept that is all-pervasively present even when the vocabulary isn't used. I think we're far more accustomed as biblical exegetes today in recognizing the fact that we mustn't confuse the idea of vocabulary with the idea of concept, nor limit the idea of concept to places where narrowly defined vocabulary is used. And we saw in different ways, particularly on the basis of Hebrews chapter 2, that here is a case in point where the specific vocabulary of second man and last Adam, man of heaven, is not employed. But it would be almost impossible properly to understand the structure of the teaching in Hebrews chapter 2 without recognizing 
But in the absence of the vocabulary, the concept is nevertheless central. And yesterday, we looked at two propositions that flow from this New Testament perspective. The first, that our Lord Jesus fulfills Adam's role. And the second, that the Lord Jesus assumes Adam's nature. He assumes Adam's nature, the author of Hebrews says very pointedly, in order that in that nature he may be obedient where Adam was disobedient. And under that rubric of obedience, the whole of the work of Christ is viewed not only by the author of Hebrews, but even more particularly by the Apostle Paul. That's implied, of course, throughout Hebrews chapter 2 in bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering implies, particularly in the light of Hebrews 5.8, that this new man fulfills his ministry by being obedient to the word of the Father. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And later on, you remember how the author of Hebrews, in citing the words of the psalm, is able to convey this in psalmodic form, sacrifice and offering. This is Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 6, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. Therefore, it's all the more striking when we turn back to an explicit to Adam passage, such as Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, that the Apostle Paul there underlines for us that the work of Jesus Christ is a work that is to be viewed under the rubric of his obedience. As by the disobedience of the one, many were constituted sinners. So through the obedience of the new man, Jesus Christ, many are constituted righteous. And that's a particularly interesting and illuminating point of Paul's, because earlier on in Romans, earlier on in Romans, he has emphasized what the theologians in the past used to call the passive obedience of Christ as the groundwork of our salvation. In Romans 3, 21 to 26, in Romans 5, 1 to 11, the focus of attention had been on the passive obedience of Christ, that is, the sufferings of Jesus Christ in death for the salvation of his people. But the Apostle Paul understands that it is not possible for us to experience salvation in the full biblical sense and justification in the full biblical sense unless Jesus Christ not only exercises passive obedience in which he suffers in our place and bears the divine judgment against our sin, but also insofar as he exercises an active obedience and from the womb through the tomb to the point of his ascension, lives a life of total obedience to his heavenly Father, so that he may not only undo what Adam has done, but fulfill the calling to which Adam was called, and in our room and stead 
become not only a sacrifice for our sins, but himself our perfect righteousness. And of course, this is the Apostle Paul's understanding of what justification is. Justification is not just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned would put you back in the Garden of Eden with all the possibilities and prospects of Adam's fall and disaster still before you. What you need in the gospel is not simply pardon from sin that makes you a kind of tabula rasa in the presence of God. What you need in the gospel is on the one hand pardon for sin that's found in the passive obedience of Jesus Christ in His paying your debt, but also an active obedience, an active righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you so that the justification you receive in the gospel is a justification, as Paul is arguing in these closing chapters of the first half of Romans, a justification guaranteed to last for eternity. Because it is a justification found in the passive and active obedience of Christ as he stands before the throne of God, the judge of all the earth, in my room and stead, not only as the pardoner of my guilt, but as the one whose perfect righteousness is imputed to me so that I am in Jesus Christ, the second man, the last Adam, actually constituted eschatologically righteous. That's the reason why there is nothing in heaven or earth or under the earth, nothing in the past, the present, or the future that's able to separate true believers from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Because we can be bold enough to say that even here and now, sinners though we remain, we are as righteous in the sight of God as Jesus Christ is righteous. Because the only righteousness with which we are righteous is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you see how in this whole concept of the obedience of Christ, active and passive, grounding our salvation and constituting us righteous before the throne of God, the whole of the Christian believer's standing and confidence is to be found. Without the imputing of the active obedience of Christ, I remain insecure. I remain like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Our Lord Jesus Christ's intention is not to put you back into the Garden of Eden to begin all over again, but to secure you for the Garden of Eternity so that here and now you may know what will befall you there and then. And it's this that I want us to try a little to explore, the obedience of Jesus Christ, both active and passive, and that in my propositions three and four. Proposition one, Christ fulfills Adam's role. Proposition two, Christ assumes Adam's nature. Proposition three, Christ relives Adam's life. And proposition four, Christ atones for Adam's sins. Christ relives Adam's life. 
This is the point of the quotation in Hebrews 10:7. A body you have prepared for me, lo, I have come to do your will. But this Adam does the will of God, not within the unfallen context of the Garden of Eden, but in the fallen context of this dismal world. And Hebrews is anxious to point this out. For example, in Hebrews 2, verse 10, he must become perfect through suffering. In verse 18, he suffers when he is tempted in order to help those who are being tempted. In 4.15, similarly, he is one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And most pointedly, in 5, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Although he was a son, as Adam was a son, he was to learn obedience not in the Garden of Eden, but in the jungle which Adam had created. And as the reconnaissance officer, the pioneer of our salvation, his way of living in obedience to the Father was by beating down the jungle which Adam had created in order to bring us back to the presence of God. And it's perhaps not surprising that it's in the Gospel of Luke that these themes begin to emerge, because Luke, certainly of the three synoptic Gospel writers, is the one who is particularly interested in the flow of redemptive history, not just the fulfillment of prophecy, but the flow of redemptive history. And so there is this strand runs through Luke's understanding of the story of the gospel in which he understands that what we have here is in a profound sense a rerun of the failure of Adam in the obedience of Jesus Christ. And when we marry Luke's perspective to the perspective of the other three gospel writers, I think we can say that as our Lord Jesus Christ relives Adam's life, he does so particularly within three contexts and by overcoming three crises. He does this in three contexts and by overcoming three crises. What are the contexts? Well, Luke delineates them very interestingly. The first is the context of our Lord Jesus' conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Here in a mystery that takes place as all of God's best work seems to take place, in the mystery of the darkness of a virgin's womb, God begins again right from the very beginning, right from the root. And in that mystery that has boggled the minds of theologians from the days of the gospel writers, the Son of God takes hold of our humanity in the womb of a fallen woman with a fallen mother and taking hold of that humanity from its very beginning, from the darkness and the weakness and the frailty and the absolute dependence of that divine human embryo. He begins, as it were, in our place to work his way out of the darkness 
of the virgin's womb into the eternal light and the glory of the heavenly Father. And surrounding that story, you know the way in which Luke, as he listens to, for example, the announcement of the angel, and as he describes the events, he uses language that draws together so many different strands of Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament pattern. The annunciation that draws, for example, on the promise of Isaiah 9-7. And then that marvelous description. When Mary, flabbergasted by the announcement of this great miracle mystery, is told that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her and the power of the Most High will come upon her and that which is conceived in her will be holy, the Son of God. Luke uses the verb episkiadzo that is, I think, quite deliberately reminiscent of the narrative of the opening chapters of the Bible when the Holy Spirit comes and hovers over the deep and dark of the original creation in order to bring into that deep and dark light and form and fullness. And the whole atmosphere here is the atmosphere of God beginning again a new creation with a new Adam and yet doing so out of the context of the darkness and the chaos and the absolute helplessness of the old. As though he were pointing a kind of invisible finger. And if he were a movie maker, as all of the narrators of the Bible would have been superb movie makers, the camera would have lingered on this in absolute silence to say to us, now get this point. Because it is a hint, it is a clue, it is a key to what you are about to see emerge in the person of the Lord Jesus. As he emerges, not just along the lines of that Old Testament pattern from the womb of a barren woman, but as he emerges, wonder of wonders, from the womb of a virgin woman as a new man beginning again to recapitulate in himself that first Adam and to undo his tragic failure. And there's an echo here, I think, in the Lucan narrative of the experience of the first Eve you remember how they receive this promise that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And immediately you turn over to Genesis chapter 4 and a child is born. There is this sense that perhaps here the promise that God has given in 3.15 is fulfilled immediately. And Eve cries out, I've got the man with the help of the Lord. But he is not the man. And later on, as the people name Noah, trusting that he may be the one who will bring rest to the land, that he may be the one promised in Genesis 3.15, it turns out that Noah, for all that he patterns the work of Jesus Christ, as the apostle Peter recognizes, he is not the one either. Down through the ages, there are these hints of the barren women who give birth 
to the saviors, to the judges, to the redeemers of the people, that God is still remembering his plan, giving little hints I haven't forgotten until now here there is a woman who says, how will this be? And the great visitor from glory says, you will get the man with the help of the Lord. And so within the context of the darkness of the womb of the Virgin Mary, the power of God begins to work to redo an undone creation. And then Luke brings us almost immediately from there, doesn't he, into the precincts of the temple in that marvelous narrative in Luke chapter 2. And again, I think there are two biblical backgrounds to the narrative in Luke chapter 2. The first, I'm almost certain, is the words of the psalmist in Psalm 27, 4 and 8, which speaks about the psalmist hearing the call of God to seek his face and saying, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Where does he seek? The face of God. He seeks the face of God within the context of the old covenant community in the presence of God in the tabernacle, in the presence of God in the temple. And then, as Mary and Joseph return fretting, anxious, worried, and therefore full of recrimination to Jesus. Didn't you know that we were worried about you? In those words that are really impossible to translate because there's not enough Greek really there to translate dogmatically, Jesus says, didn't you realize that whatever I would be doing, I would be found in relationship to the things of my Father, to the house of my Father. Now, you know, there's an echo there, and I think it's quite deliberate in the way that Luke, who exclusively recounts this story, gives us this little hint that the 12-year-old Lord Jesus Christ is already an Adam in reverse. There was another Adam. There was another Adam whose father went looking for him and called out to him, Adam, where are you? Why? Because instead of walking openly in the sacrosanct territory, the temple that God had provided for fellowship between the two of them, he was hiding behind the bushes, covering himself over with his stupid fig leaves. And there was, if I can put it this way without being too anthropomorphic, there was an anxious father looking for his son, but his son was now lost. And here is the Son of God. And he says to his parents, he says, you should, have been, you should have been able to work out from what you have known of my conception, my birth, my life, my destiny, that I would be somewhere where my father would know where I was. And so even at the age of 12, as Luke tells the story of the redoing of redemptive history, he appears as one who will fulfill the role that Adam has forfeited. And then, of course, Luke goes on to tell us how he was obedient to Mary and Joseph. And this, too, is packed with Luke's appreciation of the significance of the way in which the Scriptures are going to find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Because he goes down to Nazareth to these two sinful people, and we're told that he was obedient to them, and that as he grew in stature... He grew also in wisdom and in favor with God and man. Now, 
That's a very deliberate echo of the fifth commandment, and we ought not to miss it. And the whole narrative at the end of Luke there is therefore saying to us, here is one who has come who on the one hand will fulfill the first table of the law in his absolute devotion to the Heavenly Father and also in his fulfillment of the second table of the law and particularly the fifth commandment will fulfill the second table of the law perfectly in our place. And he goes down to Nazareth and he honors his father and his mother. You remember how Paul underlines that that's the first commandment with promise. But do you remember what the promise is? The promise is that your days may be long upon the earth, the land. And right through Genesis and Exodus, there's a kind of always this double entendre with earth and land that reflects back to the early chapters of Genesis. And it's a further, it's a further hint, a further flash of light that here in the Lord Jesus, as He is obedient to His parents and fulfills that fifth command, in this one, exclusively, the promise of God is going to be fulfilled. He is the one whose days are going to be long upon the land which the Lord, His God, gives to Him. And so at the end of Luke's gospel, at the end of Matthew's gospel, how does Jesus stand? He stands as one who has all authority, not only in heaven, but also on earth. And he sends his disciples, us too, into the world. As though he were saying, my days are going to be long upon the face of the earth. And you must now claim that earth in my name, by my grace, and for my glory. And it's already there in hint form as he grows and as we are told. And this, I think, is a most important point to recognize. As he grows in stature, physically, as his potential, his human potential enlarges, at every point of that enlargement of human potential, he does what Adam so tragically failed to do. His obedience fills the spaces of his potential. And consequently, and this is a note that is struck particularly later on in John's Gospel, consequently, he not only grows in the impression he makes upon his fellow human beings, but he grows in the impression he makes on his heavenly Father. Now, those of you who are fathers, you ought to be able to understand that. Perhaps you were the one who taught your son to play cricket or to play soccer or to play golf. And then when they've been 12 or 13, they've got into the school team. And you've gone along disguised as heavily as you possibly can be, lest you put the poor fellow off. And you've stood there on the sidelines, and eventually, after going to 19 games, the boy manages to tow the ball into the goal. Do you really love him more at that point than you loved him in the previous 18 games? Well, from one point of view, no, but now you realize your son has fulfilled his potential. It's happened, and you stand there, and your chest swells, and you take your cap off, and you remove the muffler, and you take off the jacket, and there's your name emblazoned on your T-shirt, and you say, that's my boy, that's my boy. Do you think if you are evil, 
and feel like that, that the Heavenly Father doesn't feel like that towards this new Adam, his son. All right, we are going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button. I, my friends are maxed out. Or you follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. We will be back with the balance of today's lecture by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson regarding the man of heaven, part two. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally, we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet Earth. Don't miss out on getting both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Call or write today. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website... PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. 
we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Missouri. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you're not getting great in-depth Christocentric theology, well, like the lecture that you're listening to. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you'd like to support us, we'd love it if you would like to support us. If you would, the way you do that is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right in the center of the homepage, you will see our two friendly yellow buttons. Uh, one says donate. The other says join our crew. Uh, click on the join our crew button, and what you do is you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here is the balance of today's lecture uh, from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, The A Man of Heaven, Part 2. Here we go. And so as he grows in obedience, he grows in favor, not only with man, but with God. And how does he grow in obedience? Well, here it's where the servant songs are so helpful to us. Here is the third servant song. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. You see him waking up every morning, having been defended and protected by his Heavenly Father, and he looks up into his Heavenly Father's face, and his ears are opened to the word of the Heavenly Father. Through his communion, the communion which the Father sought but did not find in Adam, the new Adam, the second man, grows 
in his obedience. And then, of course, Luke almost immediately brings us to John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. His obedience is seen as the second Adam right from the beginning in his conception in the context of the temple and then in the mystery of his baptism. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 is a clue here. Now, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And that is like a hinge between what God has said about Jesus and what the Bible says about Adam for Luke. If you move back to Jesus, he isn't, of course, the son of Joseph. He is the one whom God has said of, you are my son. Then do you notice how immediately, uniquely, Luke dives into this boring old genealogy, at least it's boring until you see the point of it, which is right at the very end. In verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Luke is very clearly setting up for us here, without using the language, the analogy, the parallel, and the difference between the first Adam and the last Adam, the first man and the last man. So that when our Lord Jesus Christ is baptized here by John in the River Jordan, he is entering now publicly into this ministry in which he will fulfill all that Adam had failed to do. And fascinatingly, the voice that comes from heaven is a collation, as you know, of the great enthronement statement of the second psalm and the wonderful moving words of the first of the servant songs. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. That was the promise really that God had given to Adam subsequent on his obedience. The nations would have been his for his inheritance. He was to go and fill the earth as God's king. And now Jesus is established on a greater garden in order that he may be God's son and king in Adam's place and room. But he must now be son, not simply as servant, but as suffering servant. And it's because he must now be son as suffering servant, Adam as suffering servant, that he immediately is precipitated into three years punctuated by three very significant crises. And here, although we can see them in Luke, we need to look beyond Luke a little to discover their full significance. Crisis number one, the testing in the wilderness. I think we may be of a temptation to see the testing in the wilderness in a rather psychological way. What can we learn about our temptations from Jesus' temptations in the wilderness? That's not the way to look at the temptations in the wilderness. The way to look at the temptations in the wilderness is to see that his temptations are different from our temptations. He is being tempted not as an isolated individual because it's temptation. We learn much from it, but the function of the story is not to say, let me teach you a few lessons about how you can be delivered from being overwhelmed by temptation. The function of the narrative is to say, here, you have the Son of God in our flesh, the last Adam, 
And he now is going through the unique temptations related to the fact that he must be Adam obedient in the context of sin and suffering and not in the context of plenty and ease. And so as we noted yesterday in Mark, the only thing Mark's interested in, isn't it? Very interesting. The only thing Mark's interested in is the animals. He was surrounded by wild beasts. He's no interest in what the temptations were. His only interest is to say, look, this is altogether different from the experience of Adam. And Luke goes on to recount for us what those temptations are. And those temptations all have this essential form. In what sense are you going to be son of God? Are you going to go the way of Adam and reach out in order that the eschatological promise you will be like God will be fulfilled by disobedient means? Or are you going to submit yourself in obedience to God and in a fallen world, therefore submit yourself to being a suffering Adam and take the way of the cross in order that you may be the redeemer of humanity? When he comes to the second crisis, which takes place in the context of Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, it's an echo of the same situation. Only this time, only this time, it isn't simply the naked voice of Satan. This time, it's the voice, if I can put it this way without sounding over-allegorical, it's the voice of somebody who is part of Jesus' wife. It's through a member of the community that is, in a sense, the new Eve to this new Adam that the voice now comes. This fruit is pleasant to taste. And so Jesus, who has announced that the way of the one who is the Christ, the one who is the prophet, priest, and king, fulfilling Adam's rose, the way for him is the way of the cross. And Peter literally, it's almost unbelievable, literally, we are told, takes hold of him. Actually, physically takes hold of him and says, never! And Jesus, hearing an echo of Eden and an echo of the wilderness, says, get behind me, Satan. It's very interesting that it's following on that in Luke's Gospel, who interestingly omits that part of the narrative, but then goes on to say a very interesting thing in Luke 9.51, which is a very clear echo of the third servant's song. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out, set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, says the third servant song, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. And so he learns obedience as the second man, as the servant, suffering man. And so, eventually we move this Adam in reverse to the Jerusalem testing. 
And the Jerusalem testing is again presented to us against this background in John and in the synoptics in two different ways. In John, the great crisis is presented through the strand of thought in which instead of the Satan entering the serpent, the Satan enters into Judas Iscariot. You remember John chapter 13, verse 2, we're told that Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. But then, almost by the end of the passage in 1327, as, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan himself entered into him. And so in 1330, he goes out and it is night. And it's interesting as the conversation between Jesus and the disciples continues that at the end of chapter 14, we have this very perplexing statement. The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Now, that's interesting for all kinds of reasons. Actually, it's interesting because that's the only place, I think, in the whole Bible where we're told that Jesus loves the Father. Certainly in his own words. That he loves the Father. That's why he's obedient, because he loves the Father. But it's the closing words, if you've ever preached through this. What have you said about this? Come now, let us leave. Then you get chapter 15, then you get chapter 16, then you get chapter 17. Those of you who are of an older generation, probably a slightly older generation than mine, will remember the, I think, rather interesting interpretation that C.H. Dodd had of this statement and his understanding of Agomen with a kind of military background. Let us go, that is, in the sense, not let us go out of here and through the streets of Jerusalem, but let us go in the military sense in order to meet this enemy whom Jesus is conscious has now entered into Judas Iscariot. Now, I was just at the tail end of the generation that was taught as divinity students, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy bart and thy neighbor as thyself. And uh, there are not a lot of critical things, obviously, that I would have a lot of sympathy with God. But I think he's right here. I really think he's right. That Jesus is not speaking here about the sphere of physical motion, but about the sphere of engagement with the powers of darkness, and that he is conscious that engagement has now reached a new level because Satan has actually entered into Judas Iscariot. And it's just at that point that Luke takes over the narrative, brings us into the Garden of Gethsemane, into the darkness, into what Jesus calls the hour of the power of darkness. He tells us of that great agony in which Jesus sweats these great thromboi of blood, these clots of blood that seem to ooze out of his very being because he is now at the last crisis as the second man and the last Adam because the Father is now putting the fruit into the cup of his judgment 
that the Son will have to drink. You need to go back to the Old Testament prophets and listen to the kind of things they say about the cup of God's judgment to understand the way in which all those prophetic strands meet together virtually, literally, in the experience of Jesus Christ. As having given his cup to his disciples, he takes from his Father's hand the cup of divine judgment upon the sins of the world bequeathed upon us by the first Adam. And as Jesus says, this is the hour of the power of darkness, there is no doubt we're meant to understand that there is a voice speaking through that darkness to Jesus as he wrestles with the will of God and says to him, now, second man, whose will? And he bows, un-Adam-like, in the presence of his father, again in a garden, now in the darkness, surrounded by enemies, weary and broken, and he cries out, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And his obedience is now consummated. And having said that, perhaps there is not a great necessity to say a great deal, although I'd like to, about the way in which he then atones for Adam's sin. He does this, of course, by exchange, by substitution, by propitiation. And the whole atmosphere of Jesus' experience in the Gospels is of Jesus being thrown out, being cast out in order to bear the judgment of God upon our sins. Luke, again, is particularly illuminating at this point, because you remember how in Luke 23, as Luke weaves through the different trial experiences of Jesus, you discover in that single chapter, I think there are five separate occasions on which somebody stands up and says, this man is not guilty. He is not guilty. He has done nothing worthy of death. He is innocent. I can find no fault in this man. And as Calvin so brilliantly points out in that connection, Luke is portraying for us, writing into the history, bringing together details that highlight what is really going on here under the surface. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ is standing here accused not of his own crimes, but of your crimes and mine, and explicitly of Adam's crimes. What were they? They were blasphemy, that he wanted to make himself equal with God and treason, that he was willing to rebel against God's lawfully constituted authority. And what are the crimes with which Jesus is charged and for which he is executed, although everybody pronounces him to be judicially innocent? They are blasphemy, that he made himself equal with God and treason, that he rebelled against the lawfully constituted authority of the Roman government. So that written into the very fabric of the story in Luke, the great gospel theologian, is this message again and again and again. That he stands before Pontius Pilate as a condemned criminal, but he is really there to stand before Almighty God as a second Adam in my place, 
and then he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. And the consequence, well, Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 52:14. Many were astonished at him because he was marred beyond human semblance. You see what's happening? The one who comes perfectly formed from the womb of the Virgin Mary, now on the cross, Isaiah says, will be marred beyond human semblance. Listen to what Mr. Mateer says about that. He says, the thought is not that the servant suffered more than any other individual, but that he experienced disfigurement from being an individual, from belonging with humankind, so that those who saw him step back in horror, not only saying, is this the servant, but is this human? And so he enters in the darkness. As darkness falls over the land, he enters into the potential chaos of the entire universal system of creation. Back, as it were, to Genesis 1, 1 and 2, he enters into the darkness that covers the whole earth in order that having come from the darkness as the second man, he might be plunged into the outer darkness on the cross of Calvary. And then, having been laid in the deep darkness of the grave, might emerge on the resurrection morning as the Savior of the world. Oh, my friends, do notice the depth of his humiliation. Forgive me if this is an inappropriate illustration, but in the last three weeks I've heard John Stott preach more frequently than for a long time. I also heard him towards the end of last year. And I've observed something that I've never observed in him before. I've always observed that John Stott never in his speech mistook a comma for a semicolon. I never heard him miss a beat. And now every time I hear him preach, I hear him miss a beat. And I think quixotically from the outside, it's taken him 80 years to experience what most of us experience every time we preach. And then the thing that has endeared him to me, and forgive me if this personal illustration in any way seems offensive, it is not meant to be offensive. The thing that endears him in that context to me is that knowing he will experience that kind of humiliation which he has not known all his preaching life, he's still preaching. Now that's just minuscule by comparison with what the gospel is saying, the Son of God experienced, the one who knew no sin, who dwelt in the presence of the Father, who had no need for his own sake to come for us. Think of the depths to which he stoops, that there in our human flesh, as he relives the life of Adam, he now is hanging naked and ashamed upon the cross of Calvary, disfigured almost beyond human recognition in order that by, as it were, absorbing into himself the chaos and the sin and the judgment of God that Adam has brought upon this whole human miserable context, he might exhaust it in himself. And as the Father has given him authority, lay down his life, and on the third day, take it up again. 
having finished the work the Father gave him to do. And where does he do it? Do you remember how Peter puts it? There surely must be something in this, that he bore our sins in his body, not up to the cross, not to the stauros, but to the zoon. Word that echoes the pole in which the serpent was raised up. And it's a word, I think, that very deliberately echoes the tree in the Septuagint. Genesis chapter 2 and 3. He bore our sins on his own body on the tree. So that just as the end of the beginning took place at the tree, the beginning of the end takes place at the tree. The temple veil is rent in two. The cherubim who behind that veil guard the way to the presence of God are now exposed. And the way back to Eden is made possible. That's why I find, as I said yesterday, the closing two chapters of the book of Revelation so fascinating. Because you're suddenly confronted with a series of images that rapidly takes you back right through the whole of the Old Testament. First of all, it's a Jerusalem coming down. But the Jerusalem turns out to be a bride. And then the bride turns out to be a temple because everything is temple. And then as you move from looking at the city and the bride and the temple, you see at the beginning of Revelation chapter 22 where all these biblical images have eventually been taking you. Back to the garden back to the tree of life. And through Jesus Christ, the second man and last Adam, God says to you now, reach out and take of the tree of life and live forever. Live forever. Well, I wish there were time for application. But I hope that as I Reflect on the great Jonathan Edwards. The doctrine is all application. The application is all doctrine. Let's pray. Father, expand, we pray, our understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we sense these flashes, these explosions, these little time bombs that through the authors of Scripture you have planted in your Word that seem to shed light on him in a hundred thousand different ways. We pray that in our minds and in our hearts and through our lives, our Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted and magnified in a new way. And we pray that our whole ministries may be ministries in which we point to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And through that ministry, win him a bride to whom he will be wed forever and forever. Make us such ministers, we pray, for Jesus' sake.
All right, so what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.